From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. How do we go beyond our instincts to to engage with difficulty with fight or flight? Right? What's what's another way that helps us feel proud uh, in moments of difficulty rather than ashamed, which I think is the norm for so many of us. Still a young man, Dr. Simran Jeet Singh has an impressive list of accomplishments. A scholar, writer, and popular public speaker with a focus on religion, racism, and justice, Simran is the executive director of the Religion and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. And now, he's the author of a brand new book entitled The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. On this week's show, he'll be with us to talk about the book and the incredibly challenging moment for minority religions into which it emerges. Governor Greg Abbott and State Attorney General Ken Paxton have directed state agencies to conduct investigations of families when they provide gender-affirming medical care for transgender children. Abbott and Paxton went so far as to say that this care should be categorized as child abuse. The level of vitriol aimed at LGBTQI plus young people and those who support them continues to escalate on the political religious right. And there seems to be no thought given to the life-or-death consequences of this political gamesmanship. That's why it's so important to cast a light on efforts, particularly faith-inspired efforts, to offer support, safety, affirmation, and community to this marginalized group. This week, you'll meet Reverend Yadi Martinez-Reyna, a Texas faith leader who has just returned from running their first youth camp for LGBT youth and their allies. I want to look at every book that you guys, a copy of every book that is brought, pulled out out of circulation. I'm sure we've got hundreds of people out there that would like to see those books before we burn them. Even as the Supreme Court gives its blessing for taxpayer money to be funneled to religious schools in Maine, attacks on public schools elsewhere continue apace. Specifically, the right-wing campaign to ban and censor school and library books not consistent with a narrow nationalist worldview is spreading across the nation. In Texas where this outrageous culture war battle seems more advanced than elsewhere, the Texas Freedom Network is pushing back in various ways, including a public reading of banned books this Tuesday. We'll get the inspiring details from TFN political director Carissa Lopez. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and math. Most of us have marveled at the breathtaking detail of new web telescope images of the universe, but guess who's got a problem with them? Young Earth creationists who see the images as a direct challenge to their belief that Earth has only been around for some 6,000 years. And while this may seem like a fringe view, this is a good time to remember that recent Gallup polling shows 40% of Americans believe God created humans in our present form, i.e. no Big Bang and no Darwin. But the pictures are pretty anyway. An avowed Confederate activist and white Christian nationalist has secured the GOP nomination for Attorney General in Maryland. Michael Perutka insists that we must, quote, take a biblical worldview and apply it to civil law and government. This kind of rhetoric and its advocates seem to be unstoppable in their ever-growing level of influence in the Republican Party. And new findings from the Public Religion Research Institute show a dramatic jump in Latino Catholics supporting reproductive rights. With Roe repealed, the number in favor of abortion being legal in most or all cases has soared from 51% in 2011 to 75% today. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. Last year, I had the pleasure of interviewing tireless scholar, writer, and activist Simranjeet Singh for the Interfaith Alliance web series, 
the American purpose. This week, it's great to be with him on State of Belief as we mark the release of his latest book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. It's an ambitious work for anyone, never mind a scholar not yet 40. But as with all of his writing, Simran manages to balance deep expertise with an accessible style that promotes without proselytizing and celebrates without excluding. And so, Simran Jeet Singh, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. It's good to be with you again. You know, congratulations on this book. I, I know what a busy guy you are because I've tried to have a number of conversations with you, and, uh, and it's uh, hard to schedule because you're doing so many things. And I've read your post on social media that says almost with disbelief that the light we give is actually out. How are you feeling about that? <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, the, the, one of the challenges that I think we all, we all face today is that um, the light in, in our lives is, is often hard to see. There, there's so much difficulty. There's so much darkness. I mean, it, it feels like a constant barrage of bad news. And so the, the victories, when they come, uh, you try and savor them. And this, this was, uh, a lot of hard work and, and a lot of support along the way. I mean, it's just been an incredible journey for me. So I'm really grateful, especially now for, for the lightness uh, that's coming from the book. Well, let's, let's talk about lightness for a minute. The subtitle of your book makes me want to ask, how many readers do you need to actually convert to Sikhism for you to, to be able to say mission accomplished? <laughs> it's such a funny question because, you know, in this, this was actually a concern of mine that in, in our tradition, uh, in Sikhism, the, the teaching is that one doesn't need to be a Sikh uh, to achieve enlightenment and to find happiness. And, and with the subtitle, I, I was a little bit afraid that people might think that I'm, I'm coming in with this expectation uh, that, that people need to come on to my path in order for me to be happy, which is absolutely not the case and, and not my intention. So I, I, I love I love the question. It's it's one that that tickles me, given given my own sort of belief in in, in pluralism and, and uh, many paths uh, to the to the one goal. So the answer is zero, which makes the book an immediate success. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's the metric. Yeah. And if zero is the answer to every metric, then I'm, then I'm winning in life, I guess. There you go. <laughs> so more seriously, what are the core values, the core teachings that you highlight in the book as being most important, both to an understanding of, of the faith and in your life as a Sikh in America? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking that. Because, you know, part of part of what I want to offer here, and it goes back to your question about why why does this wisdom matter? What can it offer us without without making the, the case that one needs to to enter into the path of sick practice? And and what I've come to learn in my life and, and what I've come to really believe strongly through my study of, of various religious traditions, including my own, uh, is that there are some principles that we can apply from these worldviews that are that are different from how we're operating today in our daily lives. And some of these ideas can really address what's at the core uh, of our challenges today, right? And, and so a few of the basic principles that I explore through the book, uh, I, I start with the foundational teaching uh, in, in Sikh philosophy, which is oneness, ikwamkar. Uh, and it's very similar to how Buddhists might talk about interdependence, or how Muslims might talk about the concept of tawhid, the, the, the interconnectedness of the world. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a different starting place from what we're used to uh, in, in American society, which is not, not about starting from a place of difference, right? Let us understand one another in opposition to one another or in contradistinction, right? What makes us different? But instead, let's start from what we share, and, and, you know, in our, in our tradition and in many traditions, the metaphor of light uh, is used to talk about what it is that we share and what resides within each of us. And then when you can learn to see the world through that lens, uh, from, from the beginning point of oneness, then the differences that we encounter are no longer threatening or scary because they're, they're expressions of that same light that we all share. And then it's beautiful. And we celebrate it and we appreciate it. And I think that teaching alone, very simple, 
a subtle shift in how we approach our lives and the world, but it can really make a difference in terms of our ability to, to find happiness in our day-to-day lives. That's great. Will you say just a few words about Seva? You you discuss it at some length in the latter sections of the book, and I, I was very struck by it. I'll tell you why in a sec. Yeah, sure. So Seva is is the concept in Sikhism and the, and the practice uh, of service. And in many ways, it's similar to what's familiar to many of us uh, here in the West. But in many ways, it's also different. And, and one of the elements that I think is different about it is that for seva to be authentic, for it to count, it's not just about what you do with your hands. It's also about what's in your heart when you do it. And so the intention is very important. And the, the teaching is, if you can engage in the world's work through an inspiration of love, then anything you do will be fruitful. And and part of the teaching here is also to say that by simply engaging in loving service, if you're doing it with the right intention, with the right motivation in your heart, then as you're engaging in that work, you're not just making the world better around you, you're also reducing your own ego. And that is a critical teaching in the Sikh philosophy and in many spiritual traditions that Ego is at the root of suffering. And if we can learn to reduce our egos, we can be happier. We can find more joy. We can feel more love in every interaction. And so seva is both the the aspiration. It's what we want to be doing ultimately, right? Serving with love and selflessness. But as with many things in life, the process of achieving that goal is also the practice of the same aspiration, right? To get to this point of beautiful, loving service, we can get there by practicing it every single day. And that's that's part of the sick teaching and philosophy as well. I, I was very struck by it, I will tell you, because one of the guiding uh, maxims in my life comes from the Talmud, which which says to us, be not like the person who serves the master with an expectation of reward, rather mm-hmm. be like the person who serves the master without an expectation of reward. And I just resonated so much with what you wrote about the importance, not just of doing, but of doing in the right frame of mind, uh, because it, it, it's a holistic approach rather than a utilitarian approach, which, which is just wonderful. And, and it creates a connection, and I want to talk about connection next a little bit. It's an important thing, theme that keeps emerging throughout the book. And it's also something that experts tell us is dangerously missing from today's society. Mm-hmm. Please talk about the importance of connection and how central a value it is for six. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start with my own my own life experience, and, and probably the place to begin is during the pandemic, where it became very clear to us as we went into shutdown. You know, I live in New York City, uh, in in one of those uh, small but very expensive apartments. Uh, <laughs> that is that is where our, whatever would have been our life savings goes towards our apartment. And, and it became very clear to us, here we are in one of the biggest cities in the world. We had people all around us. And all of a sudden, we were realizing that we weren't actually connected to them. And, and it wasn't just this sort of social understanding of, of being disconnected from people because we couldn't see one another physically. But it was also a recognition of disconnection from ourselves, right? All of a sudden, I am in my apartment with myself, and I can distract myself with Netflix and internet for, I mean, a few days without any social contact. But then time goes on, and that really starts wearing on you. And what becomes really clear really quickly for a lot of us is that we don't actually know what to do with ourselves, when we have time alone and, and that we are disconnected from ourselves, right? We're constantly, I mean, for me, it's, you go for a 10 minute walk to the grocery store and, you know, how do I survive without my earphones, without my headphones, listening to whatever podcast or mute? I mean, I, I constantly need distractions. And so it's, it's just this really eye-opening experience of we think we're connected because of technology, because our world is getting smaller and it's easier to interact with people. But really, ultimately, we don't, we don't actually feel that in our hearts. And we are, I, I think, as it's exposed through the pandemic, we're actually very disconnected and it causes us extreme suffering. 
it causes us a lot of pain. And so the teaching in Sikhism is, I mean, in part, we suffer because we detach ourselves from the oneness, that we are unable to see what is really connecting us all. It's not that we're not connected and we need to connect. It's that we're, we're not able to see the light that ties us all together, that binds us all together. And so it's, it's really just, and I'll, I want to say one more thing here, it's really just a shift in perspective, right? The sun is always shining. And depending on where you're standing, you see it or you don't. Right. It might be on the other side of the world, but it's it's really all about perspective. And that's this is the teaching in Sikh philosophy that we can change how we view the world. It's a choice. And if we can do that, then we can really learn to find the, the oneness and, and feel a connection with all the people around us all the time. So you've talked about connecting with others and and the perception that goes outward. Can I focus for a minute on identities, which is another uh topic that you discuss with some some diligence in your book, especially on wrong assumptions about identities and identification. Mm. What would be a sort of diagnosis as well as a prescription about identities? Mm. Well, you know, I, I think the way we talk about identity in this country um, is so misleading. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is we are so constantly focused on the differences that divide us and we're wrapped up in a frame of these certain categories, right? And, you know, you might be on one side and say, well, this is how we should talk about race as opposed to another side, or this is how we should talk about gender. And, and the question for me is, as we obsess so much over these aspects of who we are that differentiate us, what are we losing sight of? And what is the cost of that oversight. And so, so identity to me, certainly these things matter, right? The fact that I wear a turban and have a beard, I want people to see that and appreciate that. That's, that's something that's really important to me, but it's also not lost on me that even before they get there, I want them to see my humanity. And that has to be the starting point. And, you know, I've been in, I've been in situations myself, including recently with, with people who have very different political views than me, where I've made assumptions about them. And I've been surprised to find out that actually I get into a conversation with them and they're not the devil. <laughs> they're not the worst people in the world. And they actually do have a sense of compassion for me when I've assumed they haven't, and there is no possible way that they would. And so I, th I think part of you know the, the experience that I've had personally is that we all do this. We all make assumptions. And what then do we do to get to a place where we are honest about that. And, and I think there's, there's some real introspection that we all need to do. Uh, and, and I think spirituality offers uh, a window and a mechanism for having this introspective practice in ways that we're not used to in this culture. And so, so for me, digging into ourselves, going within, not just pointing our fingers elsewhere, but really like looking inside of ourselves and saying, hey, how am I doing this thing that I am, that I'm so ashamed of, or that I'm so embarrassed by, but I'm, I'm going to own it. And I'm going to do it because I also want to be able to tell other people that they should stop doing it, right? Like there, there's no space for hypocrisy when it comes to talking about and resolving our, our culture of discrimination. And so we, we need to be lockstep, right? In, internally doing this work while externally focusing on, on the justice work. And, and that to me, it feels like at least for somebody who is trying to find wholeness and authenticity in their own lives and their day-to-day -day experience, it has to be a both hand, right? The, the personal as well as the social at the same time. Simran, I am your much older colleague. And so I remember very clearly 9-11 in 2001 and how it propelled six into, the, into a public profile as they responded to hate crimes from which they suffered but were ironically not actually directed against them. Not that that justifies what was done, but uh, Sikhs were mistaken for Muslims, and Muslims were the target of, of tremendous bigotry in the aftermath of 9-11. And it, it motivated uh, the formation of uh, Sikh involvement 
in the political and social life of this country in a way that had not happened before. But that anti-Sikhism, or at least the bigotry uh, that was understood as anti-Sikhism, is a double-edged sword. And I say this as somebody who grew up and identifies with the Jewish community, where anti-Semitism has been a motivating force for so many Jewish organizations and Jewish individuals and and runs the risk of being uh, sort of our, our community go-to in order to motivate people to act, often at the expense of the more positive aspects of what it's like to live a Jewish life. Can you talk about the value of that prejudice against your community and the danger of it as well? Mm, it's it's such a good question. And I think it, it can only come from someone who has lived through that double-edged sword aspect of it, who who knows that, you know, this this actually cuts both ways. Um, and, you know, there's there's something really interesting about being sick in this country in particular. And that is we are so visibly noticeable and people have no idea who we are. And so, so we're both visible and invisible at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the other aspect of this is it's so easy for us to focus on the bigotry of today and lose sight of actually, this is not a new issue. Communities in this country have been dealing with these same issues in different forms, but the same issues at their core for centuries. And even for the Sikh community, you know, racism did not start with 9-11. And, and the first six who came here within a decade of arriving uh, were uh, targeted in race riots in Bellingham, Washington in the early 1900s. And the, at that time, they were seen as Hindu and described as Hindu. And then over the years, we became Muslim because that's who the enemy was. And, and so it's, it's this really strange situation of people having no idea who we are and seeing the turbans on our heads and then making assumptions based on what they feared and who they might, at least from a distance, think that they know. And so it's, it's really been a challenge for us. And I think the, the, the post 9-11 response for the Sikh community came out of an urgency. And this is true for me, too. I was 18 years old and it really shaped the trajectory of my life and, and even what I do now. Um, it it understanding that in order to survive in this country, we had to make ourselves known. We could no longer afford to be invisible. And that is, it's such a sad thing to say uh, that in this country, you don't get respect until you're known, but it's true. And we've seen it over and over again with different communities. And also uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. It is a long process uh, to come to be seen and known in a culture uh, where the norms are so dominant uh, and and people on the margins have such a hard time edging their way in. And so that that is a very real experience for our community and, and, and my my life. And, and I've lived through evolutions of this, both personally and, and through the community. And, and the other thing I want to say, and this is part of our evolution, is that you're, you're absolutely right to point this out, Jack, that in the post 9-11 moment, it was extremely reactive and it had to be because our lives were on the line and we had to make sure that hate wasn't going to swallow us whole. That it, was, it was a real risk. And so the reaction was was fine. But then what you what you find out over time is it's really easy to fall into complacency and only really engage when you're reacting, when something happens and then and then you are activated and you push back or you, or you respond, or, or however however the situation calls for. I mean, that's what you do. And so it requires a lot more effort, insight, forethought to be proactive and think about, well, what do we do so that we're not just responding to hate when it happens, but actually creating a world that is safer for us and our kids and for everyone who's here. And so that's the double-edged sword, right? Like if you can get to a point where you have enough community strength and enough uh, vision uh, from your leadership to say, this is great. We are now getting better at the crisis response mode. 
now let's move to a place where we don't have crisis anymore. Like that's, that's where we want to get. And I think that's, that's really important to hold uh, in your heart at all times. So we have a whole lot of Texas going on in today's show. In addition to my conversation with you, we're talking with uh, some folks who ran an LGBTQI plus camp and some other folks who've been doing a banned book reading. So I'm interested about Texas, as long as we have you here. You grew up in San Antonio, of all places, not exactly the place that uh, Americans who are not sick would expect to find a community of six. How did how did the experience affect you and continue to inform who you are now? Yeah, you know, it's there's there's so much I could, there's so much I could share <laughs> about growing up. You know, my father was the first to move to San Antonio with a turban. Uh, and so we were we were some of the only ones growing up for a long time. My brothers and I were the only kids with turbans uh, growing up in San Antonio. And so th- there are many elements uh, to what we experience. You know, on the one hand, from my parents, they had to work harder and be more intentional and be more intentional about sharing their sick values with us because we weren't going to get it from anywhere else. There was no Sunday school or an equivalent when we were growing up. Uh, another aspect of this is we we learned quickly. Uh, that we were different because people would always ask us and it wasn't always malicious. Sometimes it was, but they would just let us know and it would be subtle or, I mean, it would be honest and direct, but they would say, why do you look like that? Why do you, why do you wear that thing on your head? Uh, And so we had to learn not just that we were different, but how we wanted to respond. And that required some depth, but you know, what's, what's interesting, what I've been thinking about recently is, is this point about assumptions, which is, now I live in New York City, and when I tell people I'm from Texas, they're like, oh, that must have been so terrible for you. And I, 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 I resist that because my childhood, I mean, was fantastic. I loved my childhood. Racism was a part of it, but there was so much more to it than that. And, and what I see in people's responses is the same kind of assumption that we're actually trying to erase, right? There's this, there's this feeling that oh, because it's this part of the country or because the governor is this way or because the laws are this way, everyone there is rotten. And I, I think that's such a, it's such an easy trap to fall into. We're all vulnerable to it. But also it's an opportunity for me to push back and say, actually, life was great. Like I, I, I love <laughs> Texas. I've, I've been in New York now for 15 years. I still have my Texas pride intact and I'm embarrassed by a lot of the politics there. Uh, and I'm nervous about where the where the state is headed in terms of some of its upcoming legal rulings, including the book bannings that you mentioned. I mean, it's it's absurd. Um, but also the people who I grew up with, they're still my closest friends. Uh, still, my family is there and I love that they're there and I love going. So it, it's this this really interesting blend of, yeah, it was tough in a lot of ways. It was different for sure. Uh, but also, it was it was wonderful in ways that people might not expect. Well, we're big fans of San Antonio at uh, Interfaith Alliance because that's the home of the Baugh Foundation, one of our major supporters, and the vice chair of our board, uh, Julie Baugh Cloud. So, uh, I I endorse that there is a lot of good going on in Texas, whatever mm-hmm. else might be happening. Your book right now is number one on the Amazon bestseller list in the Sikhism category. And so big congratulations on that. Thank you. What would you like to see people get most out of this book, Simran? Oh, it's a good question. There, there's, there are a lot of goals. So it's sort of boil it down to one is tough. But I would say more than anything, as I see people suffering, uh, you know, life is hard for all of us right now. Um, it feels very difficult to have hope, um, and it feels like the despair is constant. And and so for me, it is this is an opportunity to to share some wisdom that I've gained from my own tradition that might bring light to other people's lives. And so uh, providing some some insights into well, what does it look like to fight hate with love, or how do we, how do we go beyond our instincts to to engage with difficulty with fight or flight, right? What's what's another way that helps us feel proud uh, in moments of difficulty rather than ashamed, which I think is, 
is the norm for so many of us. And so th that's that's what I'm really hoping to offer. Really, at the end of the day, just make life a little bit more easy for people, a little bit more calm, a little bit more peace, uh, so that we can we can continue to live in this challenging world in ways where our, where our heads are held up high rather than down to our chests. So I'm going to ask you two more questions about your answer. Uh, the first is this. You, you really can't have a conversation about a minority religion in the United States today without at least a passing reference to the current crisis that religious freedom faces in our country. Mm. As, the, as the cultural and political dominance of one particular flavor of Christianity tries to consolidate power and influence, the foundational value of pluralism and equality is even more marginalized. What are the lessons that we could draw from Sikhism that might address this moment? Oh, it's it's such a good question. I mean, you know, the one aspect that I've really been thinking about a lot recently, which would be such a great antidote uh, to our current politics and, and our challenges, uh, is humility. And and I think you know one of one of the issues here around humility, we, it's it's so hard for us to think about ourselves and our security without feeling like it's in competition with other people's. And, and this, this is fueling all sorts of anxieties, whether we're talking about demographic change or, or recently we've been describing it as, as replacement theory, right? The fact that other people are having opportunities doesn't necessarily have to mean that we lose status as well, right? We can, we can have equality and be on the same footing, which is, I think, where we, where we actually want to be and what we aspire to. But I, I think it just requires a bit more humility. You know, the, there's, there's this, I, I've struggled with this concept too, I mean, personally. And, and the, the one teaching that I draw, and this comes from C.S. Lewis, not a, not a sick thinker, but a Christian one. Um, he taught me that humility is not thinking less about yourself, it's about thinking of yourself less. Mm -hmm. And that completely changed my frame, right? This is, this is not about diminishing us. It's not, it's not about, you know, negating who we are or giving up who we are. And we don't have to feel threatened uh, by, by people around us who are different. What we can do is actually feel good about it, right? We can celebrate them and lift them up. And also that will enrich us. And I, I think that way of approaching the world is something that I, that I learned from Sikh philosophy that I, I, I think would offer us great value today. That's a great answer. So here's the other question. You sat down to write this book, clearly at a moment in your life where you felt you had something to say. Do you feel that writing the book changed the way you think and the way you look at the world? Or had you come to your, however, tentative conclusions before you picked up the pen for the first time? Mm. It, you know, it, it did change a few aspects of, of how I view the world. And also it changed a few aspects in terms of how I view uh, approaching social change. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of changing the world, um, I, I've always, I mean, I, I should say very clearly, this is not my wisdom, right? This is what I've learned from my tradition. And so it's not that I feel like my perspectives have morphed because I, I'm just trying to channel what I've learned uh, from Sikh philosophy. Uh, but certainly, and, and, you know, teachers and parents will understand this, the process of distilling ideas uh, into into vignettes or stories that can help people access them. It's very clarifying. So I certainly feel like I am more clear eyed about what my tradition teaches by virtue of having gone through the process of trying to share it with other people in the same way that I, I feel like I, I am more understanding of scientific concepts or math when I'm trying to teach my younger daughters about, right? Like it's kind of how the brain works. And then in terms of, of the approach, um, it's, it's, it's sort of funny, like you, you we've all been taught um, that facts don't change people, um, that information doesn't change behavior, and, and really you have to create a point of connection. And, you know, I've, I've heard that over and over again, um, and, and I've learned to do it in various aspects of my life, but it was very difficult for me to figure out 
what is the mode of storytelling for a book like this? And, and I did not expect it to be my own personal story. Um, this was not intended as a memoir. Uh, but over, over the years of writing this book, I, I learned to realize that actually my personal storytelling could be a vehicle for that. And essentially, by opening myself up to the world, that might help open other people up to the possibility of, of difference and exchange uh, in ways that we really need right now. Well, I encourage people to read the book, if for no other reason, to find out about the most prominent basketball-playing sick family in San Antonio, <laughs> Texas. Yeah, that's the real, that's the real claim to fame, and that's what we all really care about. <laughs> Dr. Simranjit Singh is Executive Director of the Religion and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Recognized among Time Magazine's 16 people fighting for a more equal America, he is a Soros Equality Fellow with the Open Society Foundation, Senior Advisor on Equity and Inclusion for YSC Consulting, and a visiting professor at Union Seminary. Simran's new book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life, has just been published by Penguin Random House. Simran, thanks so much for being with us here today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Up next, an inclusive youth camp for LGBT young people and their ally friends. And later, gathering to read banned books in Texas. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Few places in this country are more hostile right now for LGBTQI plus people than Texas, especially for young people. The relentless politicization of queer identities and lives has real consequences, and that's doubly true for young people of faith who identify as LGBT. That's why the just-completed Color Splash Out Youth Camp is so important and why I'm so happy to have the organizer, the Reverend Yadi Martinez-Reyna, on State of Belief Radio. Yadi, welcome. Thank you. Please describe the camp experience for us. Who was it for, and how did it go? Well, a year ago, I finished seminary, and I got together with some friends from, from Bright Divinity, where I, where I was in seminary, and I said, we should do a camp. And they said, well, there's camps. I mean, it's, you know, there's already a camp going on. There's all these camps. And I said, no, no, a camp for LGBTQ youth. And a lot of them got really excited, especially my trans siblings, and said, I wish there was something like this when I was growing up. And as a non-binary person, I started thinking about how even going to camp as an adult can be frightening. Where are you going to sleep? Uh, when you go swimming, how are you going to swim? How are you going to be treated? Um, what bathroom are you going to use? I mean, what are all these things that, 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 that arises even as an adult? So imagine a young person. And then there's a the faith component. The attack from all these religious organizations saying, you know, don't say gay in Florida. And, you know, all this media stuff that's coming up um, in Texas, the legislation that affects our kids. And so we were like, there's no better time to do it than now. And so we started talking with a camp in New Braunfels and I went down for a visit and said, you know, we would love to have a camp here. This is what we would love to do and partner with you. And so it just started really with a group of friends saying we should do this. And as I started going through all the things, it has to be intentionally safe and brave for, for people. So we're going to change the things that camp normally does, giving them their name tags. We're not going to do that until they're in their houses. We're not going to call them cabins. We're going to call them houses, house of, because we want them to feel like in the queer community, especially in the 80s, there was this thing about choosing your house, your family. And so I wanted to have that uh, 
going on in this camp. So we call them houses, not cabins. So you get to choose what, where you're going to sleep. Is it going to be with the trans, uh, the boys, trans girls, or is it going to be all girls or is it going to be a non-binary cabin? And so we started slowly figuring these things out and we realized we want to be intentional about name tags. We want to be intentional about preferred gender pronouns. We want to be intentional about where they sleep. We want to be intentional about the activities we do. And so it has been an amazing experience to have seen it to fruition. I mean, we had the components of an empowerment workshop. So we had a, a dear friend of mine, Carmarian Anderson, who works at the HRC Alabama, join me and and do an entire uh, workshop about vision boards and how to how to envision yourself successful. We did a, a, another uh, workshop on what does it mean to be non-binary? What does it mean genders? Uh, and Chris, Chris Page from uh, Trans Faith in Boston helped me with that one. And so all these friends of mine, <laughs> and I was honest from the beginning, I was like, I have no money. I have nothing. Could you help me with this? And they were like, yes, we'll be there. And so everything that we wanted to happen happen even if it was just us trying to put our resources together and um and the most important thing i think that happened was we created a drag show and for a summer faith camp that was the first a drag show but um we wanted to reclaim back what drag is which was which was about family which was about feeling pride which is about performing and so we wanted to also be intentional about that and so we call it drag show slash talent show because we wanted this camp to be for LGBTQ plus youth, but also for their ally friends. And that was a crucial part because our ally friends help us get through really hard times. That's great. So you mentioned all of these anxieties that kids come to camp with, no matter what their sense of self is. Can you take us inside just a little bit the conversations you had with the people who helped you plan this camp as to how you raised these very difficult questions for any kid with a group of kids who are also used to being cautious about expressing themselves in terms of their identity? Well, um, the anxiety of where you're going to sleep is, is huge, like I said, even for adults. So right. for a young person to, to know from the start, from registration, that they get to choose what house or what gender to go to was imperative. But we also know that there might be parents who don't understand or might not register in that way. So, or kids that might not be out in faith communities. And so we could have a young person that, uh, a parent say, well, this is a girl and I'm going to put him in, put her in the girl's cabin. But when they arrive, they might be trans. They might just not have been out or, or mom might not have been on board when they reached with the registration. And so we, when we talked to the house leaders, we said, okay, this is where they're going to be. But when they arrive and parents leave, we're going to ask, is this your cabin? And so we had uh, our house leaders, which was two per two per house per se, um, welcome them, but also ask, "Is this your cabin?" And with the with the understanding that we might be transferring them to another cabin, and that was perfectly fine. Swimming, we wanted to make sure we told them there's swimming going on, but we want you to be you. And so the 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 adults, the leaders, brought extra t-shirts. They brought shorts. They brought um, uh, they brought towels. We even had someone bring uh, a binding uh, because we we were aware that we had a trans young man who had lost his. And so, right that day, they ordered one on Amazon. It arrived the next day to camp, and we were like, "We need to do this. We need to be you know prepared next time to have some stuff." But we, it was the first time we did this. But we wanted to make sure that those fears were in our minds when we when we welcome these kids. So that's, that's the wonderful part that you've talked about. Let's talk about Texas. Um, 
what you what do you see the political and religious assaults on queer people doing to them right now in places like Texas? Greg Abbott came out with this idea and it was an opinion. It wasn't law. It did not go into law. It went from court to court. It was it was upheld. The Children Protective Services started investigating. Then there was another ruling. Then it was down. And so as adults, we know that. We know that it's not law. It's not true. It's back and forward. But for a young person that listens to or sees in social media or hears their friends or sees it on TV or whatever, it's law. It's real. They're coming at me. They're going to stop my my transition or my health. Uh, they're going to come after my doctor. They're going to put my parents in jail. And this fear, even though these are not laws, these fears were coming out. And we were beginning to see how this young people were so even terrified to, to come out. And if they were out, terrified that they were going to be asked to stop what they were doing or it's and for, and for many of them, this is life-saving health issues and concerns. And so for, for those students that have gone through the work of being in therapy and working with their parents and finally getting to a place where they're, where they're getting help and then seeing a government official speak against them or speak so low of this and even calling it abuse, it just sent this turmoil on these kids. You had a range of experiences for the young people there. Talk about what they were able to share in and why all of that was so important to include. You, you mentioned the, the Dragon Talent Show, for example. Yes. What was so important about that? The leaders, the house leaders brought with them uh, bows, dress-up clothes, uh, rainbow flags, tutus, they brought with them all kinds of stuff because even though nobody signed up for the track show when they registered or for the talent show, um, we were so committed to to opening a space for them that we even had leaders perform. We're like, okay, and, and I said, friends, I need you all to perform because nobody signed up. Uh, but by Saturday night, I had a list of teams that wanted to perform. And they wanted to sing and they wanted to and and the reason it was so important was that they got to be themselves. They got to explore what it meant to perform. Uh, some of them were just there for their, were allies and were there for their friends. And so they got makeup up too, and, and they got up there too, and, and they were singing with them. Uh, some of the houses perform as, a, as an entire house. And so it was just important to say, this is sacredness. This is community. This is what being whole is. This is what being together is. And so right after the track show, we went into worship. And I said, and there is no difference as we go into this, because all of this is sacred. So it's it's wonderful to have a safe space to explore different aspects of yourself like this especially with a community that is enthusiastic about it. I'm, I'm just, I'm very impressed. For, for me listening to it, that's the most powerful thing. What do you think was most powerful for the people who were attending the camp? I had many house leaders who said, I'm, I'm, I'm down for next year. I'm in. <laughs> and anything else you need from here to there, let's, let's get together and let's plan something. Let's plan. Let's, let's make it a nonprofit. Let's, I mean, they were so excited as, as leaders to have seen and to have witnessed what this four days did for these young people. And when we asked the young people, do you want to say some words? Do you want to come up and say something? A lot of them said, I found my place. I found my community. I don't feel like a freak, an outcast. I don't feel I, I'm home. And that was just like that bow on a gift. It was just like perfect. You know, as, as organizers uh, or our leadership team, we knew we were like, oh, we missed this. Oh, we should have done this. Oh, we should, you know, and we had all these things. 
But when you saw those those teens and their faces and their appreciation, you were like, it worked fine. It worked great. For being the first time, we did a great job coming together and doing this. So that's great. I mean, look, it's it's summer camp too. Yes. So <laughs> what was what was just the most fun? Uh, well, a lot of them would say the drag show because they complained that it was not in the <laughs> time. They were like, <laughs> I kept saying, okay, we're going to have to transition to worship. We're gonna, but no, one more song, one more song. And so um, a lot of them said, you know, we, we would love, we would like to have more time to dress up. And so that for them, the most fun was makeup, lights, music, art, putting it together. Because we wanted to also make sure that they were a part of of, of the creation. So we wanted to empower them because we might have kids who, who might want to be in, 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 in aviation or in, in, in makeup or might want to do it. So we wanted to make sure that they also got included in these things. And so they said, we want more time doing this. So I would say that was the most fun part for them. Listen, that's, that's the best feedback you can get when, when somebody says to you, this was great, but not enough. Yes. Are there things that you learned from the experience of those four days that will inform how you organize in the future? Yes. We need to bring with us more resources. We, um, we met young people who, who mentioned to some of their house leaders, you know, my, my mom is struggling. You know, uh, we, we don't have a lot. I wish that um, maybe we should have brought some other things. And so for this coming year, we're gathering things, uh, clothes, or we're gathering uh, supplies for, for school or things like that, that when we come back and we know of these things, we can, we can give them to these, to these young people. And we, I, one of the things that really inform also how we move forward is we found out that we have a lot of our young friends who are neuro, neurodiverse, uh, neurodiverse. So um, they, they needed more hands-on things. They needed more for workshops or they needed more, uh, more stimulating things to be a part of. So, because, you know, we had uh, young people that had ADHD or HDD, you know, I mean, attention deficit disorder. And um, we had, um, young people who were not comfortable with just being silent for an hour. So they all had to take a nap and the silence for some of them drove them like, I, I don't want to do this. And so we learned that we have in our, in our community, some things that we have to address. We're creating the next year's camp. Um, we want to be able to provide resources. We want to be able to have spaces that, they can thrive and that we don't um, trigger anything that they might've had a bad experience. In. So silence for some that had trauma, it, it, it just, we wish we would have known and we would have maybe done something different. And so we, we gave them a tablet back and, you know, because we are electronic free and things like that, but, we wanted to make sure that maybe we should have had some coloring books and, and maybe we should have had an area where maybe they don't take a nap, but they can still interact coloring or, or doing things or building, building something. And so my next camp, we are aware of the things that they need, the different things we need to address. And it's really helped us see that there is no one model fits all. Well, thanks for slipping in that announcement that there will be a next camp. Oh, yes. That's, that's a good thing to know. <laughs> Absolutely. There is. So, Yadi, so many people in this country are distraught over what's happening in the brutal culture wars and the harm that it's doing. How would you advise them to go about getting involved and making a difference in their own communities the way you're doing in yours? One of the things that I believe is important is to find out if the school district that you're in has a gay straight alliance. And if they do, 
to find out who is in charge and then connect with them because they will tell you what are the needs of your local area. They will tell you um, how they can use your help. Some of these kids in schools um, are just in so much in need of a mentor or, or of a figure that is supportive. And so by connecting with these organizations, Gay Straight Alliance or a local chapter, then you or supporting one town next or whatever. But by doing this, you will really see, you will really get to come into that safe space. That's terrific. Now, if, if our listeners have been paying attention during this interview, you have rattled off any number of things that could make your ministry more successful. Um, people could make contributions in kind. They could make contributions in cash. They could volunteer to come and bring their particular skills to the camp. They might even invite you to another community to recreate this situation. All right. Yes. All those are great suggestions, but they have to find you. How do they do that? How can people be in touch with you to offer support for this wonderful program? Absolutely. So we finally have a website. Uh, it's colorsplashout.org. All one word. All one word. That's great. And there they will find information about how to be in touch with you and how to make uh, contributions of any kind to this wonderful experience. Yes. The Reverend Yadi Martinez Reina recently led the first ever Color Splash Out Youth Camp for LGBTQI plus young people and their ally friends in Texas. They continue to find innovative ways to support and empower marginalized youth under the mission statement, creating intentional, safe, and brave space that welcomes all to their authentic self. Yadi, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me. Last month, the Supreme Court gave its blessing to public dollars funding private religious, mostly Christian, schools in Maine. At the same time, there is a relentless attack on public education nationwide, including active attempts to ban books that deviate from a hagiographic view of U.S. history, challenge a white nationalist narrative of our founding, or raise up LGBT and other realities unwelcome in the circles that dominate our culture right now. Texas often leads in such efforts and keeps the Texas Freedom Network more than busy in finding creative and effective ways to respond. One such way is a public reading of banned books coming up in the state capital of Austin this Tuesday, and I am happy that we can hear a bit about this event from TFN political director Carissa Lopez. Carissa, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Reading banned books. Oh, my. What horrible texts are you subversives going to be subjecting the public to this coming Tuesday? We're going to have all kinds of books from the, quote, banned book list that has been circulating in Texas. Some of the banned books include a children's book called Call Me Max by Kyle Lukoff or Class Act by Jerry Craft, right? Uh, these books are really just about inclusion. We have students, parents. Uh, allies just in the capital to to read these quote banned books um, these books that legislators uh, are trying to ban that some school boards are trying to ban uh, from to keep students from reading about diverse experiences um, and are really excited about this event who's doing the banning in Texas Carissa and and what are they targeting most intensely it's kind of happening at all levels, right? Um, a lot of it is happening at the local level, at the school board level, but with direction from the state, right? A while ago, we saw a legislator in the height of his primary election um, release this list of books that were 
quote, of concern to him. And then we're seeing school districts, some school districts respond to that. Some school districts, like, you know, we see the city of Austin and Austin Public Libraries uh, encouraging the reading of these books, but then we see other school districts that are uh, really going after and punishing librarians and educators for giving access to these books. Um, and so this event that we're having, this reading, um, is really a response to that and to give people an opportunity to gather in community and stand up against these uh, draconian policies. You know, this is an old tactic, a very old tactic, but it's not something we've heard much about in the recent past. Is the banning of books a growing thing in the state? And if so, why now? <clears throat> It is a growing effort in the state of Texas. Uh, it is, you know, a response and it is a long pattern of really them, the far right trying to take over public schools right? Um, they're trying to undermine public schools. We did see it with the Supreme Court case. We've seen it with them and how Texas has continuously introduced vouchers. And I'm sure the next legislative session, we're going to be in for a, a big private voucher fight. Um, we're seeing this, um, you know, with the way that they are rewriting curriculum standards in Texas. Uh, we're also about to be in the middle of a social studies curriculum standard rewrite. Um, and then we also see this at the Texas legislature. They're passing bills to really censor and whitewash history in the state of Texas, which, you know, if you think about it, that impacts every single public school student. And if you really want to influence how they're going to grow politically, you influence what they're learning, right, from a young age. There are people all across this country who see challenges to their own freedom coming in the form of censorship, books being banned, and so forth. A lot of times, there's this sense of helplessness that can set in. I'd like to have you talk about how small steps to challenge bad trends can both make a difference and at the same time help provide a sense of empowerment and community for those who are taking the action, such as the folks who are taking part in the public reading on Tuesday. Yeah, um, I totally understand. It feels really overwhelming to live in the times that we live in right now. Um, we're, we're seeing the far right attack us on every front, um, and including really censoring what is happening in our public schools. Look, we all want what's best for our children in public schools. And we, in order to continue to advocate for accurate history, for students to learn, learn the truth, to have diverse experiences represented, we have to do things like take small actions and start there, right? Uh, advocacy at your local school board is hugely important, right? Lo advocating in your local community makes a huge difference. Going to the Capitol and participating in the read-in, for example, is also something that folks can do and also be surrounded by people who are trying to do the same thing, right? It really, having a conversation um, with friends who are in this work with you, in this fight with you, helps keep you energized and moving forward. Uh, because we do have an uphill battle, but this is not the first time in this country we have needed big drastic change. And this is, and so we can do this, right? We have to continue to advocate. We can't stop. We can't let our guard down. Um, but we do need to take care of ourselves and, and doing this work in community with others um, is really beneficial to the cause and beneficial to ourselves. And I think that, um, you know, we are going to continue to advocate Texas Freedom Network is going to be here in this fight, and we are going to be here to support folks, and we just need you to, to help us and get involved and participate in, in advocacy and go out and vote as well. Please talk about some of the many other important projects Texas Freedom Network is working on right now. I know that some of them are local, but you also have a number of programs and events that take place online. Yeah, so we launched um, our Teach the Truth Coalition, which is a coalition of many of our part with many of our partners, um, including Equality Texas, IDRA, ACLU of Texas, to really fight 
censorship and the whitewashing of history. So this all happened at the local level, but also at the statewide level. So we're hosting webinars um, online. Um, we're also advocating at the State Board of Education, right? This read-in um, coincides with both a public education house committee, but it also it leads up to the first public hearing at the State Board of Education for the new social studies curriculum standards, right? So this is so this is an effort that is happening at all levels, um, and TFN is leading in that fight with our partners. Um, we are also a, a multi-issue organization. So today, I just got back from uh, supporting a resolution at Austin City Council um, to support abortion access in whatever way we can in the state of Texas. Um, TFN has also been working with our partners on LGBTQ equality, which intersects hugely in this censorship fight because we know that LGBTQ uh, viewpoints and LGBTQ um, individuals are some of the ones being censored, right? And so we are advocating at the local level, at the State Board of Education, at the Texas legislature on all this huge swath of intersectional issues that are affecting Texans every day. Carissa Lopez is political director at the Texas Freedom Network. On Tuesday, TFN is organizing a public reading of banned books at the state capitol in Austin. For more information on this and the many other important initiatives Texas Freedom Network is working on, you can visit tfn.org. We have a focus on Texas today and a lot of things that are going on there. But the fact of the matter is that all the people we're highlighting today are working hard to make things better in the place they love. Carissa, thank you for taking this time to be with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information about how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.